May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, O Lord, to you, our Rock and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are on a journey together. We are exploring what it might mean for two quite different congregations to come together as one. One congregation, though it includes some new members, is very well established and has a traditional style of worship. The other is much more recently established, and because it is mainly comprised of families with young children, has been much more informal in style. You already know this, of course, and you will know to which of these you belong. I sometimes wonder whether this thing we're trying to do is completely mad. How can a service of worship be both traditional and contemporary? How can it be both structured and informal? How can our gathering together be a calm oasis of peace that many people need, and a place where lively and energetic children are made properly welcomed, and not frowned at or even shushed? How can it be a place where all belong? One way to think about what we're trying to achieve is to think of it as something like a marriage. When two people come together to form a lifelong committed partnership, they start out coming from two very different families. Even if the parties to the marriage are from a similar background, families will often have their own very particular ways of doing things. There will be different expectations and ways of living in a home, different attitudes to work and money, and different experiences of how children and adults should relate to one another. It is part of the joy, wonder, struggle and challenge of becoming a new family to navigate and negotiate a new way through all those experiences, attitudes and expectations. I will have been married to Barbara for 25 years this July, and we are still working a lot of this out, even now. But those joys, wonders, struggles and challenges are worth enduring because we love each other. I get the same sense thinking about this new congregation that we are forming together. I'm picking up a genuine desire from all to make this work. There's a positive energy around what we're trying to do. People don't all know each other very well, but there is a growing sense of love and appreciation for one another. As well as celebrating my own silver wedding anniversary this year, I'm looking forward to conducting two marriages at St Edmund's Church, one in May and the other in September. The marriage surface itself makes clear that marriage, in the Bible's understanding, is a picture for us of Christ's relationship with his church. In some ways, marriage is like a contract, but it actually goes much deeper than that. Marriage is a covenant. A contract governs the details of a particular transaction. It relates mainly to one thing at one time. It most often sets the limits and boundaries on what is being exchanged. It's meant to protect both parties from unforeseen obligations. A covenant is quite different. It's meant to establish a relationship and not a transaction. It sets out to establish the commitment of both part parties in the relationship to one another. It has limits and boundaries, but only in terms of establishing faithfulness. For the participants in the relationship itself, the commitment is meant to be total. It is the binding of one person to another. It creates the space in which love can grow. In our culture, love tends to come first. For the couples I'm preparing for marriage this year and for others in previous years, it's almost unheard of for people not to be living together already. I don't say that prudishly or with reactionary shock. What I mean to convey is that the act of covenant making in marriages these days is the seal on the love that has already established itself in the shared life of a couple. They already live as if they were married. They are, in effect, already married in their hearts. 
the ceremony is the public seal and declaration of what is. In days gone by, and still today in other cultures, it was very different. People being married were often not very well known to one another. The covenant making created the secure place of commitment for love to grow. Love grew out of commitment. These days, and in our culture, commitment more often grows out of love. That commitment in marriage creates security because it commits each party to behave as if they loved each other more than anything else in the world. It's a commitment to put the well-being of our partner higher than anything else. What we know scientifically today was known intuitively through all of human history. That when we act as if something is the case, more often than not, the feelings do come. Covenant making commits people to act out of self-sacrificing love even before the feelings of love have emerged and makes the emergence of those feelings possible. And if the marriage covenant is a picture of how God relates to the people of God, then we need to understand our relationship with God as being a covenant too. As we reshape our worship in becoming one congregation, we need to reflect on how our worship expresses our covenant relationship with God and with one another. The Bible is the book of the covenant, or perhaps better to say the book of the covenants, plural. Our God is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. God establishes covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses and David. And at the time when Jeremiah declared a new covenant in our reading today, all of those covenants were in his rearview mirror. All of them were fundamental to the nations of Israel and Judah. They were unbreakable. And yet God, through the prophet, declares that something new is coming. Why would that be? Were the previous covenants flawed in some way? Did they fail? What we know from marriage is that it is no guarantee of a successful lifelong commitment. The promise itself doesn't achieve everything. It takes a daily living out of what we've promised. And as we look over the history of God's previous covenants, we see that the flaw lies not in God but in human beings. God is faithful. God's people are faithless. We are faithless. That is not a surprise to God. In fact, in making covenants with God's people, God compensates for our faithlessness. There is a striking picture of this in the covenant ceremony between God and Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, which you'll find on page 11 in the Old Testament section of your pew Bibles. In Abram's time, kings making a covenant would sacrifice animals, divide the pieces up and walk together between the pieces in an elaborate dance. In Abram's dream, Abram is merely an observer as the firepot and flaming torch conduct the ritual in front of him. God acts for both the divine and human participants in this covenant. Well, now back to Jeremiah, Jeremiah on page 669. In the promised new covenant, no longer does God have to make up for and cover human faithlessness. No longer is the covenant law something external that condemns us. Now it is written in our hearts. No longer are sin and faithlessness to be remembered. Now iniquity is forgiven and sin is remembered no more. No longer do we need to be taught about knowing God as if knowing God is something outside and beyond us. Now all know God. God is our God and we are God's people. How is this possible? 
What has changed in human beings? How is it that people could never be faithful to the faithful God and are unable to be so now? This brings us finally to our Gospel for today because it is in Jesus that this promise of Jeremiah is fulfilled. Jesus enacts and instantiates this new covenant because in him the human and the divine are one. On one level it is simply his incarnation that achieves this unity and this covenant fulfilment. But Mary's act reminds us and points forward to the events we anticipate in this Passion Tide. Her pouring out of this priceless perfume is an act of outrageous generosity, an act of worship. It reminds us that God does not hold back that which is most costly for our sake. It reminds us that Jesus is Mashiach, the Anointed One, the One whom God has anointed with the Holy Spirit to, as he said, fulfil all righteousness, God himself in human form. No longer fulfilling the covenant for human beings, but as a human being. It reminds us that the living God will soon be anointed for burial as he gives up his very life for our sake. This is the ultimate act of self-giving love of this covenant-keeping God. Worship means many things to many people. It has been a delight to read the responses to our worship questionnaire as these have begun to trickle in. Worship certainly includes the shape and style of what we do when we come together on a Sunday morning, the songs we sing, the stories we share, the words we say, the gifts we offer and the prayers we pray. Ultimately, however, I wonder if worship is about orienting ourselves in the life of God. If it is the way that we are with one another, that will be our most profound offering of worship to God. If we are to worship our self-sacrificing, covenant-keeping God, that it, then it is the covenant we make as a community to one another and keep with one another that is the deepest expression of that worship. We may not yet feel that we deeply love people who are not part of our already familiar circle within our church. But if we commit, if we covenant to treat one another as if we already do, then this can become a place of such love. I invite you as you prepare to share the covenant meal today, and as we continue in this conversation of reshaping our worship, to commit yourself to seeking the best for those who are not like you, for those who have a different background, a different life, a different experience and different expectations. If that is how we can approach this journey, then the journey itself can be an act of worship to God. Amen. <laughs>